1: Hi, everyone. I'm Boomer Assayasin, and I'm so delighted to have you join us here on our all new Game Time podcast. Our guest today is a trailblazing executive. She is the first female CEO of a big four accounting firm. And now she's leveraging that business expertise to help elevate the WNBA to the next level. We are honored to be joined by WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelberg. Kathy, welcome to our Game Time podcast.
2: Thank you. It's so great to be here, Boomer.
1: I know you've done considerable research on this topic, Kathy. What is uh, your profile of a typical WNBA fan? And what do you consider your demographic sweet spot? And what's your strategy for expanding it in different directions?
2: Yeah, I think um, what I would say today, the WNBA fan is a very multicultural and urban, more socially conscious, community-minded. Believe it or not, we got data to say they're more health and lifestyle conscious than the average adult of other sports leagues. And of course we skew more women as a percentage than the men's league. So I think we're about 55 men, 45 women. So we still have a lot of men. And what we love is we all have a lot of girl dads who bring their daughters and we have a lot of moms who bring their sons and they want their sons to be exposed to the pure form of the game that our players play first. So, um, so, you know, that's where we are. We do need to drive a more um, multi-dimensional fan. I think sports betting ESPN launched our first ever ever fantasy league last year, bringing in kind of that fan as sports betting becomes legal in more and more states. You know, bringing in more families, bringing in we have a a LGBTQ plus community, very diverse there, who are big avid and rabid fans of the WNBA, matching our player demographics. Um, But you know, and I I think if we could get more women in and um, more uh, digital natives, the younger population who. No sport has figured out yet how to draw them in. I think other than, you know, obviously the NFL has a lot of younger male fans and drawing in that digital native because they're the future of all of our fan bases and the future of how media is going to look at and advertisers are going to look at bringing in fans. So that's where we're focused today.
1: You know, I know you're going to expand the, uh, the, the schedule. I know you're looking to expand the league. Now, are there any plans for a WNBA Development League? Currently, there are only 144 roster spots league-wide, and sometimes that creates various tough choices for some of those players if they get injured or cut.
2: It's a great question. It's very, I think we're probably one of the hardest leagues to make a team. You know, our second and third round draft picks sometimes don't make teams. Last year, we had a very strong second round, well, a very strong draft class overall. Overall. Um, And so there is a discussion around what would a development league look like? Um, Obviously, that's something that years and years into other men's sports league they had. The NCAA is a great feeder system today. I mean, our rule today is in order to be drafted, you have to be 22 by the end of the calendar year in which you get drafted. If you're in the U.S. university system, 20 if you come from overseas. We now have 23 players from outside the U.S. from 13 countries Uh, so again, it is tough to make a roster, hopefully adding 12 to 24, if we add two teams and maybe four teams longer term will help, but you'd also don't want to degradate the quality of the game. You want the best players playing at the highest level, which is what the WNBA is today. So, um, but you know, it is hard to make a W team. Um, and these, these players are so strong and you see where people drop in a draft class or rise in a draft class because of the strength and our average height of 6'2", and we have, I don't know, eight players, 6'8", or taller. So it's pretty amazing what they're accomplishing on the court.
1: You know, I know you consult with Adam Silver quite a bit. I'm just wondering if you've consulted with any of the other sports league commissioners on issues of mutual concern.
2: Yeah, I think, again, having gone through live sports being so disrupted, having gone through a pandemic um, and also the racial crisis where we're and Adam, we both have leagues of 80% people of color. And so, yes, we talk with, you get a seat at the table, again, that title called Commissioner Seat at the Table with Other Commissioners. Um, so, yeah, I, I see the other commissioners, you know, Roger and Gary and, and Rob, and certainly I have, you know, good, a close relationship with Adam and and then Jessica Berman, who's a fairly new commissioner over at the NWSL and I'm actually working golf as well. So I even see Jay Monahan. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a small group of us that, you know, we have uh, a lot um, in common as it relates to how we're trying to drive live sports into the, you know, basically trying to set it up. Like I say, I'm not trying to set up for the next five years. I'm trying to set it up for the next like 40
1: You know, there's a lot of tough questions that I could ask you and I'm going to ask you one that I've asked other commissioners uh, when I've had them on the show or when I've had them on my radio show here in New York. You know, part of uh, the allure of sports is that it provides an escape, if you will, from the real world, you know, with the country so deeply divided these days. Is there any concern that you may have that the social justice activism, for which the WNBA is so famous for, of course, intrudes on any of this escapism and might alienate any swath of the league's potential fans or merchandise consumers?
2: Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, one of which if you look at who your players are, and if you're going to have your number one pillar of your strategy be to be player first or player led, And that's why when George Floyd happened with our league, 80% women of color, we had to form our social justice council, which we wanted to be league facilitated, but player led. They had to lead. So I realized not everybody's going to like us because of that, but we're the most diverse league in in professional sports here in the U.S. And it's just something that obviously coming into the role, I knew the social justice stances of the players. I didn't know till after the 2020 season. How much impact they would have, including on an election in Georgia, um, including you know on you know how they express themselves, and they all have. Um, they're all really smart. They're all college graduates. Our head of our union is Neka Gumake. She's the president of the players' association. Stanford graduate, so smart. So they do it in and Sue Bird, who just retired after 20 years, so smart. So. They do it in a way I think that's important to them. They don't try to have their voice on every issue because they know you'll lose your voice. They they do it in a very thoughtful way. And they you know this year they, they were around community and civic engagement. Last year it was around health equity with a focus on communities of color coming out of the pandemic. But we really didn't come out of the pandemic last year. So, you know, just really smart topics that they advocate for. But I recognize some players are going to do do and say some things that are, are going to make some people not like the league and. I think given who our fans are and and how we're thinking about growing the league, um, I I think the players are okay with that, but we do try to meet with them and make sure that they understand we're trying to grow the league at a time when the country is so divided. But when you're leading a league of women and women athletes and 80% women of color and LGBTQ plus, you have to be very, very clear that you're going to support them
1: in their stances. I appreciate the honesty, Kathy. So when you were appointed back in May of 2019, you actually became the first commissioner of the WNBA. I don't know if fans out there realize this, that it used to be the president was the title. Why did league ownership switch that title from president to commissioner?
2: It was actually Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, who, basically wanted to signal that WNBA is a legitimate sports media and entertainment property and sp- big sports leagues have commissioners. So it was quite progressive. I thought of Adam. I didn't, everyone thinks I asked for it. I didn't, but Adam basically stepped up and, and said, you know, we're, we're going to make you a commissioner, which, you know, a few months later we hit the pandemic there. I had a seat at the table with other commissioners. So uh, it was quite visionary too. And I'm thankful to Adam for that.
1: No question. It comes with a lot of power for sure. The WNBA is coming off of what I would consider a very successful season. Very exciting, by the way. Competitive postseason as well. What are some of your metrics for the success of how they were met during the season?
2: Well, we can't be any more pleased with the state of the league right now. Um, The the level of basketball that these 144 athletes are putting on the court, boomers, amazing. We had our most Watch season in 14 year years, our most viewed playoffs in 20 years, our most viewed draft since 2004 when Diana Taurasi was drafted. So that tells you uh, that we've got a ton of momentum, and it's a little bit of boomer. This if you build it, they will come, which I know is a baseball analogy from Field of Dreams, but. You know being up nearly 50 percent in the number of nationally televised games so again the if you build it and people came and we're in the process of transforming the league building household names driving social media to drive more fans i mean espn has been such a great partner they doubled the number of wmba focused social posts and they got 1.1 billion impressions and for the w that's really good so and then on the court I don't know if you followed us at all, but, you know, we had all kinds of records on number of triple doubles in a season, three pointers made. Um, you know, we play eight minutes less than the men. We pay 40, not 48. And, you know, with a 24 second shot clock. So in my finance world, that's almost 20 percent less play. And and the players are just putting an amazing product According the ace has scored over 100 points many times and ended up winning the first championship in Las Vegas city history. So all good. And we expanded our playoffs and we're going to expand to a record 40 games per season this coming season. And we raised 75 million in capital in February. So uh, we're really on a good trajectory to now deploy that capital and growing our fan base, making it easier to be a fan and lots of other fun things coming.
1: You know what? You are really good with numbers, I can tell. So I know (laughs) your your background now. So there are reports, speaking of numbers, that uh, the league will soon announce expansion plans. Your office has uh, winnowed down the candidate cities from 100 to about 10. So what are some of the key criteria needed to uh, get one of these cities a winning bid?
2: Well, first, if you look at the cities that are interested, we we did a huge data analysis before we even put out there that we were going to expand. We took 100 cities in the U.S. and Canada, and we said you know, what does it look like from a psychographics, a demographics? Um, do they have good arena situation? Will Can we find committed ownership groups? Do they have a good corporate sponsorship base locally? Um, and, and so it really has shown that there's a lot of interest from a lot of cities. We're not gonna rush into it though, Boomer. So I wanna make sure we're transforming the league, you know, kind of changing the tires as we're going 80 miles per hour down the road. Um, and ideally adding two teams by 25 or 26 would be perfect. Hopefully we'll be in our next media deal, but we're also globalizing the game. So not only expansion from a number of teams, because there's no doubt we need more than 12 teams in the longest tenured women's professional sports league in the world. And we're the longest in the U.S. We're the longest tenured by double any other. No one else has reached 12 and we'll be in season 27 next next spring. So, um, but we're also trying to globalize the game. We announced we're going to do our first ever preseason game in Canada I'd love to do. The NBA has been great with their global games. I'd love to do something in Europe, EMEA, uh, longer term, Asia and Africa. A lot of our players have uh, roots in Africa, so lots to do there. And we already are covered in so many countries 207 countries and territories, I think. So there's a great appetite for women's basketball. We just have to get it um, exposure.
1: All right, we're just getting warmed up with Kathy Engelbert as she's getting warmed up as commissioner. So when we come back, we're going to reveal some of the early sources of her competitiveness and creativity when game time continues right after this. Welcome back to Game Time. Kathy Engelberg grew up with five brothers and two sisters in a basketball-crazed family in Collingswood, New Jersey. Now, this is just outside of Philadelphia, and there she played half-court basketball with her brothers, and she claims they never let her win. Now, you said... That they never let you win but i just can't imagine that you would never won a game against your brothers come on
2: well i was you know i was the fifth of eight and there were three older brothers so i was the fourth in every sport wiffle ball soccer street hockey they put me in goal and basketball certainly and <laughs> a lot of people don't know this my father was drafted into the nba in 1957 by the detroit pistons he had played his college ball at st joe's university one of the big five under Dr. Jack Ramsey, now Naismith Hall of Fame coach. So we kind of all had basketball in our DNA. And yeah, every once in a while, the brothers would let me win, but it was more, I got paired, which brother I got paired with uh, against the others. We played a lot of two on two basketball.
1: You know, interestingly enough, I don't know if people realize this about you, but you were actually recruited to Lehigh to play lacrosse. And then you walked on to the women's basketball team where you played for Hall of Fame coach Muffet McGraw, who later won two national championships at Notre Dame. So what did you learn from her?
2: Well, it was amazing. So I walked on to, I saw a poster. This is back pre-digital and social days, a poster on campus saying, tryouts for the women's basketball team. And I walked on. And Muffet tells the story now. She almost cut me the first day of tryouts um, because she thought I was a cheerleader. By the way, so, <laughs> um, so anyway, I said, Muffet, if you would have cut me, I never would be the commissioner of the WNBA. So thank you for not cutting me. But um, learned so much from Muffet. She was a first-year coach, so she didn't recruit anybody that year. Um, the team was terrible, and by my senior year, we were twenty-four and four. So it's no surprise she went on to be an iconic. One of the greatest coaches, I think, in the history of the women's game um, at this, uh, you know, and an advocate for young girls, women role model. Um, And I was pretty shy as a freshman. So she taught me a lot of stuff, including, you know, greatness starts with fundamentals. And it was about practice. And, you know, now I took that into my business world to say, like, be your best in ordinary moments, because then you'll be great in extraordinary ones. And you know that as a professional athlete, you have to be your best in ordinary moments. Because then, when like in my world, when you're on the foul line, fourth quarter, and you're down one and you're shooting two, you're exhausted. You know that muscle memory will kick in, and you're going to make those foul shots to win the game. So, um, and my dad threw me in the backyard a few times to uh, to practice some foul shots yeah. too. So, uh, but Muffet was was great. Um, Coach McGraw, again. I mean, she, she, we have so many Notre Dame players now playing in the WNBA because of her leadership and her driving them to national championships.
1: You know, you are armed with a degree in accounting, and then you joined this big four accounting firm, Deloitte. Back then, more than 90 percent of the firm's partners were men. So I'm just wondering for you, what was that working environment like and how did your success help it evolve in terms of diversity?
2: Well, I think, number one, playing college athletics, high school and college athletics helped me enormously. Because then I went to Lehigh at the time was four male to one female in 1982 when I matriculated to campus. And then I graduated, and as you just said, I think it was 93% male leaders at the time, 7% women. So, you know, and my mom used to say, you know, you're going to do fine growing up in this male-dominated world because you grew up alongside five of them, right, with the brothers. So, yeah. um, but look, it, it was, um, Deloitte had a great apprenticeship model, a great culture. We had a CEO back in the early 90s who had two daughters who said, like, they didn't work for the firm, but he said like I want them to have equal opportunity and we're losing women when they get to 30, 35 years old. So I was just part of a great culture um, to be able to raise two children, balance it all and have a career like I had and, and really and worked really hard. I always said, work hard, play hard. Um, and, you know, when I started out, like someone told me I, w- I actually went to Lehigh as a computer science major because that's what my dad did. And and then, you know, I had to take an electrical engineering course, Boomer. And I'm like, yeah, that's not for me. And so someone said, There's this thing in the business school called accounting. I had no idea what it was. And they said, it's the language of business and you'll definitely get a job because there was these big eight accounting and consulting firms. And I found out years later, you know who said accounting was the language of business? Warren Buffett. So it was a a good advice from a a sage that I didn't even realize at the time.
1: Guess what? Adam Silver selected the right person, that I can say. So you get to your new office in uh, July of 2019 and the WNBA is in the midst of a rebranding and more importantly, the worst thing ever, that is labor negotiations. I was on the other side of the table against Commissioner Tagliabue back in 1987, so I know how difficult these things are. So what was your first to do list looking like?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting part of of when I came to the WNB, I kind of knew the players had opted out of the prior collective bargaining agreement as it was their um, right to do, but I didn't have any idea that the trust level was broken with the players and um, and I didn't know any of the players. I didn't know any of the owners and I came in and four days into the job boomer, someone said, you're getting on a flight to Las Vegas to be in your first four hour collective bargaining meeting. Whoa. Didn't know the lawyers, didn't, you know, you know, you sit across the table and, and, you know, the one thing I had led a firm of 100,000 people and we did a lot of culture change and transformation, but now I'm in a league of 144 players and that are unionized and I we didn't have a union workforce at Deloitte. So it's kind of like, okay, how's this going to work? So I went out there and I did what I now recommend to every, you know, new leader in a role is I listened a lot because I didn't want them to assume that I knew everything because I ran such a big firm. Um, and... I listened. Um, I listened to both sides and then kind of came out and huddled with the the attorneys and said, here's the things that are important to me that I think are really important to the players. Uh, And now I know that I'm going to have to do some small things of symbolic value to build trust over the course of the rest of the season, because they were in season at the time I had joined, you know, a little over halfway through the season. And so we did a few things, tweaked a few things that the players kind of gained a little bit of trust so that we got a very progressive collective bargaining agreement done, tripled the pay of the top players. Player can now make up to $700,000 for that four and a half months of work. We're not where, we don't wanna be compared to the men's leagues that are 75, 100, Mm -hmm. 110 years old, but we're making enormous project and we're chipping away at building an economic model to fund higher player pay and benefits and everything. You know That over the years, I'm a big studier of history boomer and 40 years into the NBA, guess what? Their finals were on tape delay. And yes. they didn't have the superstars' household names. And you know what came along? A big rivalry out of the NCAA, and it was Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And then that kind of then led to the Jordan era era with Nike and Jordan and marketing, and then obviously big media deals, and then obviously Shaq, Kobe, now LeBron, Steph, et cetera. So really like a lot of lessons in there, packed in yeah. in there around how to build rivalries compelling content now obviously content is king but the immediate landscape is shifting enormously so kind of like coming in having to do collective bargaining helped me actually build some trust so that when we hit the pandemic the players were like all right i was trying to convince everybody including my own team we can do this this is a seminal moment for this league we have to survive we have to have a competitive season we have to keep our players safe. And um, you build that trust through the collective bargaining process, which, you know, we concluded that collective bargaining mid-January of 2020. And then March, the pandemic, obviously, uh, the NBA shut down the sports world. So, you know, it's all kind of looking back now, it was all kind of a whirlwind, but um, glad we had a season and, and essentially, I think, saved the league.
1: You know, it was uh, Pete Rozelle who came up with the Super Bowl, which was a genius marketing ploy. And then it was David Stern who did exactly what you said, took Magic and Larry, took those players to another lever and built a trust with them, which has got to be the hardest thing I would think to do for an outsider like yourself.
2: Definitely. But I think I had a little cred because I played for Muffet and I played Division One college basketball, a little cred there. So Mm -hmm. I actually did a 12 city tour when I first started and went to every team and met with the players, whether it was at center court in their shoot around or in the locker room. And and just I think I had I was a little credentialized, I'll say, (laughs) because I had played. But yeah, I can imagine if you didn't play, I'm sure they looked at me. You know uh differently but you know again we i mean the players are putting such a great product on the court and i assessed when i came in do we have to change the game no because our strategy sits on the foundation called the game the brand the brand with the rebrand and the logo woman and the orange hoodie that kobe wore and became famous for and then that horrible accident with he and those young girls and and so you know kind of that th- that those pieces were the strength of of the league and then. We needed to drive trust with the players and our stakeholders called the owners and the media and then make it easier to be a fan. So I put in a very simple three-pronged strategy sitting on the foundation of the game and the brand,
1: which was very, very strong. The WNBA is in good hand, folks. Next up, we're going to find out what the commissioner has in store for her league and for you, the fans, in the upcoming season and beyond. Welcome back, everyone. One of Commissioner Kathy Engelbert's favorite words is transformative. Now, midway through her fourth year at the helm, the WNBA has already witnessed marked changes. So we talked about transformative changes. You've already touched on some of them. What are you most proud of, Kathy, and which ones do you still find frustratingly elusive?
2: I'll start with the frustrating because that's easier. It's the undervaluation of women's sports. Uh, The one big surprise I had was, um, how the valuation models are very biased against women's sports because they're all based on these quantitative measures that if you don't get shown and you don't get exposure, you don't get marketing dollars and less than 1% of all corporate sponsorship dollars go towards women's sports and less than 5% of all media coverage of sports is women's sports. Yet 40% of the athletes in America are women. So something wrong there. I realize we're younger in our, um, successes around sports but so we have to fix the valuation model around a media right you know our viewership is actually double one of the other major men's professional leagues and their media rights are 12 to 13 times ours in dollars so there's something wrong there and and I think because we have a, a league a, a diverse league of women of color um, that you know that should be some qualitative aspects of why companies would want to step up and our fan base we skew more urban, more socially conscious, community minded, more women than the men's leagues and women influence uh, or make 80% of the purchasing decisions in a consumer household in America. So that's another great selling point, but we never (laughs) put it all together and framed it that way, Boomer. So now we're doing that, we're seeing companies step up, Google, um, AT&T, Nike, Deloitte, US Bank are our five big, big sponsor change makers, which is our elite class. And they're just changing the world of women's sports But we need media companies and ESPN has been a great partner, but we need media companies to step up and value us correctly. So that's the frustrating stuff. The great momentum is around globalization of the game. I mean, this game is very popular. Um, Three on three, for instance, which now is an Olympic sport and our US women won the first ever gold medal in 3x3 in Tokyo, is the number one most popular urban sport in the world. So there's a lot we can pilot around that. Our all-star game is very popular. Um, I think, again, Chicago winning last year, first ever win for the sky, the Aces winning this year. We were able to pack them in after two tough COVID years and having the break for the Olympics last year in 2021. So, again, there's a lot to fix, but we're also investing in our digital products. We're actually hiring people. So we raised that capital earlier this year, but you need human capital, not just financial capital. So we're hiring engineers. I hired a chief growth officer just to focus on that. Hiring, um, you know, digital products expertise, social media. So we, we're really building a team now. That when I came in, I was used to having, hundred thousand people with lots of capability, and now we're building a team to totally take the lead to the next level. So um, lots, lots of investment. Uh, we have this great investor group that stepped up in addition to the NBA teams as well as the WNBA independent owners, and just in a really good place to drive that to the next level. And and one of the things I'm most proud of is the benefits and the money now we're paying the players. It's not it's not where it needs to be, but we're chipping away at it. And we're, up, for instance, going to pay 10 players in the off season to stay here in the U.S. and market the league. We're going to pay $1.5 million to those players. Uh, we also have a half-million-dollar prize pool for our in-season competition um, we, we made a 50 percent increase in our bonus pool money for the playoffs. So we're just chipping away slowly. Rome wasn't <laughs> built in a day, but um, we're making a lot of progress.
1: It's, it's not built in a day, but you are expanding the schedule. You're going from 36 games to 40 games, which means there's more product, which I would imagine means even bigger future media right deals. That's
2: right. And if you expand to more cities and you globalize the game, there's more eyes on it more opportunity for companies to step up and media rights to be valued, um, you know, kind of level set um, the quantitative part of that uh, valuation, because I I really think, you know, again, it's about back when Adam hired me. We are a legitimate sports media and entertainment property. We just don't get treated that way by the marketplace, by the ecosystem. So I think that's the change you're going to see. And you're seeing it in women's sports more broadly. And I think a rising tide lifts all boats and and we hope to kind of lead the charge.
1: Yeah, I kind of feel like that's starting to happen as I listen to you talk. As former CEO of Deloitte, Kathy, you're the perfect person to ask this. How do you fairly determine the value of a franchise, let alone an entire sports league? My New York Rangers have been valued at somewhere between 2 and $3 billion. I don't know how that, comes, uh, that number comes about, but how do you value the, these things?
2: Well, one of the things is today, I think in some cases, women's sports was valued on decades-old spreadsheet models that are tailored to men's sports. And in those models, a lot of the things the companies are now supporting women's sports and athletes for, the diversity of women, the strong, strong stances in community, et cetera, aren't valued at all in those. So, so I think part of this is obviously eyeballs, viewership, exposure, compelling content, those are all part of it. But also the reach to communities and diverse communities and urban communities that haven't been reached before should be factored into those. And, you know, when I was at Deloitte, I became a derivative financial instrument valuation specialist. So I know a little bit about valuation and the black box and the algorithm. So when I came in, I kind of stormed in and talked to some of the agencies that advise media companies and said, I want to see the financial models. They're not as easy as you think, and they differ by media company, and some value certain things more than others. But we're going to try to at least change a little bit of the narrative around how you put quantitative and qualitative. It's just like in environmental and sustainability, where not all of it's quantitative, some of it's qualitative. We need to do the same thing here. And I think. Um, you know, it is about the market participants, though, and you need willing participants. But we have to do better at creating the fan engagement, the fan experience. We have to do better at taking care of our players and basically getting the exposure out there, building marketing, marketing, marketing those players into Man. household names and create compelling rivalries. Because that's why people watch. That's why people watched you, you know, on on the field. So um, it's really important to do that. And I think we're, again, making progress, not where we need to be.
1: You know, I think I know the answer to this question because I can tell you have a lot of of energy. I'm just wondering how you managed to coach your daughter's middle school travel (laughs) basketball team for five years, folks, and on top of all of that, still have a professional career and, you know, ascend all the way up to CEO.
2: One of my favorite things I did was coach, it was one of the hardest things I did, coach middle school travel basketball girls when the girls would be twirling their hair and going over to the other gym to watch the boys (laughs) in the middle of (laughs) practice, by the way. But what it did was it set for me, all those girls now, you know, I was, I didn't know it at the time, but I was a role model for them that I could have children and coach and play. But I was very transparent with the people I was working uh, with. If I needed to leave a five or six o'clock to coach a practice, you know, I'm not saving lives. So, you know, and then I'll be back online. Technology allows us to be a lot more flexible, including today. Um, But, you know, I and I I was very transparent with my client that I was on at the time, a big pharmaceutical company. And they actually the men who I was dealing with there said, thank you for being so honest about what you were doing, because I want to coach my son's little team or go to my daughter's dance recital or this. And I didn't think I could do it until you said this is what you're doing. So it is about being a role model, especially as a working mom, trying to juggle a lot it's not always perfect. I tell women we're perfectionists. It's not always perfect. It's not linear. When your kids are young and they're toddlers, they cling to your leg when you leave for work. When they're teenagers, you come home, they don't even look at you. So you just have to, <laughs> you have to like adjust the way you're working and the quantity and quality of, of what you're doing. And I always called it, everybody calls it work-life balance. And because we're perfectionists, it's like, you'll never have the balance. You'll never be happy. I call it work-life integration. I integrated my kids. I brought them to work some weekends when I had to work during our busiest time. And I would go off and coach a basketball game. So I am so glad I did it. I almost didn't do it because it was in the busiest time of year. So glad because then I got to know the sports parents. I got to know the other girls. And they some of them went on to play in college. And now they're like, I was coached by the commissioner of the WNBA, <laughs> even though I was long from being the commissioner way back when I coached them.
1: You know, great advice, Kathy, and thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Boomer Size. so we'll see you again real soon right here on Game Time with Harvard men's hockey head coach, Ted Donato.